My guest this week was told success meant being a doctor, being a lawyer, you know, a professional. But for my guest, he was a professional building a community, a community of what it meant to be proud, to be proud of your skin color, your style, your background, and your story. Constantly ahead of the curve, he launches a fashion blog to continue telling his story. But what he didn't realize was the story he was telling was what so many people had been asking to hear their whole life. Now, with the recent launch of his new company, Tonal, he's continuing to empower others to tell theirs. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Joshua Kissy, co-founder of Tonal and Street Etiquette. Joshua and I discuss learning from the style of Miles Davis and Duke Ellington, growing a blog into a creative agency, helping Adidas rebrand its image in America, and the profound impact of changing whose stories we tell. You are someone that I've watched for a very long time. And I don't mean like, you know, watched in a, in a weird way, but just like really admired because... Thank you, Jeremy. In terms of, of what you've done and what you've built, um, it's very, very inspiring because I think all of us, when we first talked and met, I want to say what, 2009, 2010? Yeah, 2009, yeah. <laughs> 20, you, yeah. Had, you had just done... Or, you know, you had recently launched Street Etiquette. Yeah. Which, can can you explain Street absolutely. Etiquette real quick for folks? So, absolutely. So, Street Etiquette was a blog um, that turned into an agency founded by myself and Travis Gums. We're two kids from the Bronx just trying to figure out how do we express ourselves through style, um, through fashion. And we just kind of found this online community, but as well as like this online journal format where we dissected different clothing styles. We, we did articles around different um, clothing items and we'd wear them and we talk about kind of where they derived from and how we're kind of mixing it up today. So it's kind of like a style Bible meets like journal meets like editorial um, journal in a sense. But yeah, Street Etiquette pretty much sparked a ton of folks to get inspired by uh, this like mixture of prep movement, but like urban street but like streetwear but like mix like just mixing everything in there um yeah and kind of taking it from there so it kind of became a reference point for a lot of people uh when they thought of what prep could potentially look like but as well as different styles i think you know because when you guys came out you were very much fully formed in the sense that the visuals of it were extremely high quality. The site design was extremely high quality. Everything, because it was funny. I mean, at the time, I would say most of the other folks we knew around then, they all had Tumblrs or some sort of WordPress. And it was like, oh yeah, I use the same (laughs) HTML coding from my MySpace (laughs) that I used on my WordPress. But your guys' site was- Your site was advanced. You're right. Yeah, you were a brand. No, thank you so much. Shout out to Jermaine Davis, who worked on the site for like 10 years. Like just a dude that I met that was from Washington State. Um, and we just connected and he was coder, engineer and designer. We're like, hey, we want to have something different. We want to have something custom. We want to have something that says something. And like he pretty much brought that editorial eye. But as well as, you know, the things we requested we thought would work best on our website, he was always good at refining it. So we really had somebody to work alongside for a decade, right? Through like the three or four different um, site um, variations that we had. He was very important in each step of it and he was always involved. So 
I didn't really actually meet him in person until like a year ago. And this is like somebody <laughs> I've known for like over 10 years. That's like wait, internet relationships. Yeah, I swear to you. Um, so wait, so how did you guys worked, meet? So we met on the internet, just like through forums, through like okay. Hypebeast forums or like super future forums back in the day. Um, so met him on there and we just always kept in contact. He ended up actually um, engineering and coding tonal site later on as well. So like he was always kind of in the fold. So that worked out and for Travis Gums as well. He did his Maroon World site. So I think like Jermaine has always just been the guy that's like, hey, I could build whatever site you want to build. What does that need to look like? What does it need to feel like? So I've known him for over 10 years and only met him once. And that was like a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> like that's... built community, like, you know what I mean? Like speaking, yeah. texting, messaging, emailing, and like never met in person. Well, it's funny because you had mentioned the like hype beast forms too, because yeah. I feel like that's where. Oh yeah, I mean that was like the pre the precursor to, to street etiquette was was absolutely you. I mean we were all kind of forum folks, but that that was where you were at. And I remember like seeing you guys at Capsule and going to yes. the, the site. And the thing that I, I loved and admired the most that I I think about a lot now is you guys you and Travis specifically didn't wait to do like professional stuff. Yeah. Like like for me, I was like, oh, maybe someone will approach me or maybe I'll get the opportunity to do this. But in my mind, I viewed me as a, on a certain level and I couldn't go to another level unless I was invited. And mm. you guys just in a in a great way, just like made it happen for yourself. You Thank made, you. I mean, from from the Black Ivy thing yeah. to, I mean, all this stuff. The funny thing just... is like Black Ivy was, suppo- you know, this is crazy. So Black Ivy was supposed to be sponsored by Ralph Lauren, right? Like we're, okay. and like it didn't pan out for whatever reason. And we're just like, you know what? We're going to do this ourselves. And it actually became a bigger thing than we even thought it would be rather than waiting on Ralph Lauren and rugby to like, you know, collaborate and say yes you know, oh, yeah, because rugby was like yeah, getting ready to they, shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this oh, is God. true. This this is at the time where they were like there, when they were like selling out, killing it. This is before yeah. the descent of, of rugby. So we had this potential collaboration with Black Ivy with them. Um, and they declined for whatever reason. And we didn't come to eye to eye. And we ended up doing it ourselves. Um, and it just blew up. That was the first like viral piece of content that I think we um, understood and viewed. It was like, oh, man, this is bigger than what we thought it would be. Um, but a- again, like we didn't necessarily ask for permission because we always felt like we weren't even supposed to be in a room anyway. So let's, let's fuck it up while we're here. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so that's <laughs> well, why wait, we wh- had Why no- did you feel, why did you feel you weren't supposed to be in the room? I feel like because of coming from the Bronx, being black and brown males, being first generation um, as well. Like, you know, his parents is from St. Kitts. My parents are from Ghana. So there's all these layers to our experience, right? Um, and we're coming mm-hmm. to a space and place where it's very different, but at the same time, like as long as you kind of express yourself and, you know, kind of just show up, you know, you're kind of received well. And I think for a long time, we understood like there's always been cool guys from our type of neighborhoods in the Bronx or Brooklyn and Harlem, et cetera, but nobody exactly framed the picture and like had the opportunity to use digital media and online media to be like, talk about style, but like. When you go to certain neighborhoods, people are always talking about style, but nobody's referencing it. Nobody's being kind of academic about it. Nobody's like dissecting things. It's just more so being present. So we yeah. knew what we do is a little bit different because most of the people, most of our peers and friends in our old neighborhoods didn't see eye to eye about how we were dressing or what we were looking like because 
there's this mainstream way of like how a black male is supposed to be like yo you got to be like this like that like this these types of sneakers and i think especially when we did the prep thing that was so intimidating for a lot of the the guys in our neighborhood and things like that because they just never saw oxford with a tie and, and this and that like it was very much street at that time so i think the fact that we right. cleaned up so well and we cleaned up from that perspective it it inspired some folks for sure but of course like for closed-minded folks like it definitely um you know made them insecure about you know <laughs> what we were wearing how we were wearing it so even though like we were getting praise, you know, and press and like through the community that we had downtown. As soon as we went uptown, it was the opposite reaction, you know, like like dudes really wanted to fight you or whatever, like just like really like egotistical stuff, like just being young. Um, so it just it was just like, yeah, disparity that we that we kind of discovered and realized like, okay, we have something special, our voices matter, because even people, some people, not all people within our own community, um, you know, felt intimidated. So we knew we were doing something kind of right. Yeah. So I'm apologize. I'm a little bit flabbergasted. Like, so like people within your community were like, Oh yeah. Yeah, They were mad at us. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were mad at us for sure. Not like within the online community, but they're talking about like just going to the Bronx and just being in our neighborhoods. Right. Like people that didn't understand. Yeah. Like wearing penny loafers with like tailored pants. Like that was, that was looked at as like, soft and um feminine and all types of so like those types of dudes are very much intimidated by how me trav and, and other people were dressing it during that time because they're just like these guys are different like some people appreciate it and be like wow that's different i wish i could dress like that that's amazing like you guys look like you know a jazz band from like the 1950s and 60s <laughs> <laughs> but other people would be more intimidated and be like oh man like why is your pants like this or why is you know why are you wearing those shoes like they really just thought we should look just like them, which is like hoodies and sweatpants, you know, whatever the case is. Um, but I think we did a good job of just being like, yo, this is us. We're still from these neighborhoods, obviously. But I think it was just a different curiosity we had when it comes to expressing ourselves stylistically, because this is like pre Kanye, right? Like Kanye is like kind of molding what mainstream hip hop culture looks like, um, but it hasn't right. it hasn't hit the peak of like graduation Kanye where it's like, okay, it's normal to wear skinny jeans and sneakers, et cetera, et cetera. So like at that time, it just wasn't an open openness or thought around like how a black or brown male should be from these types of neighborhoods or from this type of part. You should just fall in line into what we think is comfortable and cool instead of challenging that. What was it about yourselves, if you look back on it now, that made you feel it was okay to do this because obviously it sounds like your community yeah. wasn't that embracing yeah but where did you feel like you were okay um that's that's a great point i think we felt like we were okay because we did the research right we we're like hey like if you know you know miles davis or duke ellington or et cetera, et cetera, you see that this is not anything new we're just like reinventing it or re-expressing it in that way so we have reference points that pointed to us actually being comfortable in the clothes that we wear right and i think that was important to see other people do it before because it just shows that hey we're just paying homage and and going and kind of continuing the lineage in that way but a lot of people didn't have those reference points because they didn't do the research so like these the community that we surrounded by like our online community the community downtown like those are always like you know understanding and open arms but as soon as you go out of, you know, downtown culture and openness in all ways, that's where you kind of get the the more 
you know, abrasive approaches or perspectives on, you know, how you're supposed to look and things like that. But that was, you know, 2009, 2008, even prior to that as well. So it was a very different time in Mm. general compared to today where most people could be comfortable in what they were and how they choose to express themselves, how they choose to identify themselves with back then. And that's why I think Black Ivy was such a big thing because people haven't seen this type of imagery when it came to our community, especially the black and brown community. So people were just like, wait, what? Like people like this dress like this? Is this like just for the shoot? And we're like, no, we dress like this every day. We just so happen, <laughs> we just so happen to shoot. Like nobody here is a professional model per se. So shout out yeah. to Fred Castleberry, um, who believed in a vision and, and photographed this. And like we we created history together. Yeah, and I remember because I think uh, Ouija yes. from Brooklyn Circus. Brooklyn Circus. He was he was in on all that stuff too with you guys. Because I don't know if he kind of like took you under his wing or whatever, but like you guys were like this crew. Yeah. Of uh, that was representing, uh, yeah, like this this form of a cultural norm that was way ahead of its time. Yeah. In the sense that you're you're absolutely right because I, I know that there was definitely. Stuff people being like, you know, what? Why are they trying to dress like this? Yeah. What is what is this supposed to look? And looking back on it now, I'm definitely awestruck that of how far ahead of your time you guys were, and the fact that also, yeah, like what you were saying, it was tied to, yeah, look, like this is this is what Miles Davis was wearing. Yeah, this is what yeah. these dudes were wearing. This was this 1930s, 1940s look, and you embodied that. But more importantly, I think, and this is you know some of the stuff we'll talk about. Like you gave validity mm. to that mm. because you were a modern day person doing that. Yeah. Like, cause now someone's not looking at a photo of a dude in the 1930s wearing yeah. this. They're looking at a photo of a dude seven, eight, 10 years ago yeah. wearing that thing. Yeah. No, and that's cause of you. That's, that's very much true. I, I'm very much appreciative of that. It's hard for me to take stock of what it truly means. Cause it's, it's such a massive impact. Like people to this day still come up to us and come up to me in the city and it's like, Hey, like, and Black Ivy changed my life or street etiquette changed my life because when I was a kid growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, that's the only representation I saw of somebody that, you know, not only looked like me, but also could um, defy what people thought black males could look like and dress like and express. So right. I think we were really intentional about that. We were with Ouija Theodore and the Brooklyn Circus. What that did was provide this validity when it came to a retail and like storefront aspect where it's like, oh, like people dress like this, but you could also buy this, you know what I mean? You could also buy yeah. into the lifestyle. And like, I think that was really important to have doors that was opened up towards the community. And it was in Brooklyn and it still is in Brooklyn. And I think it was, it was, it was a great look to kind of like open up and be more inclusive because it's one thing to walk around the streets and look cool and have, you know, these garments, but it's like, how open are you to like see other types of people? And as well as like, um, think around how do those people play a part if they, if they are inspired. And I think that was always a thing that the Brooklyn Circus did. It brought all of us together. It's just a meeting spot. It was like a eating spot. It was everything. Like you just go there, talk about the latest ideas, um, the latest things that are happening, the current affairs, and just kind of learn from each other, but as well as find a safe space and comfort. So that was like a major safe space when we were growing up was going to the Brooklyn Circus all the way from the Bronx and being able to just kind of hang out with people that kind of had a, a, a similar mindset, but would challenge you and, and help you grow. Mm. When, when you were doing all this, um, you know, you, you're, what, what were your parents thinking? Oh, like, my were they parents, supportive? Yeah. I mean, at first they weren't supportive only because they didn't understand what 
uh, success looks like outside of the traditional trajectory of what you should do, especially as like immigrants coming to this country, like for them, like success is very traditional, solid doctor, lawyer, right. engineer, et cetera, right. et cetera. Like you really need to have a straight on trajectory to impress them and make them feel like, you know, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. So I think for them, you know, at first it was, it was just difficult to understand, right? Like you're forming community online and then you are posting and taking, <laughs> fo- taking photos and all these clothes. Like they just didn't, they couldn't grasp it, right? Like, I get it's, it. not like yeah. it's not like today where parents <laughs> can like kind of go on WhatsApp and like go on like, you know, Twitter and try to figure it out. But back then it was like the wild, wild west of the internet. So yeah. it was very much, it was very different for them to understand the impact that the internet and social media has had. And like, they didn't really get it until later on. But the thing is, my dad is just like, hey, you know, you could go back to school um, and do this, or you could like show me what you're doing for the next like year or two. If this doesn't work, you've got to go back to school and I'm going to pick the major for you. And I'm like, oh no, like, that was, <laughs> yeah. And I agreed to it. I was like, okay, if this theoretical thing doesn't work out, um, I'll go back to school. And I'll do the major that you picked for me. Um, so I knew it was high stakes, you know, high stakes, high rewards. <laughs> so I made sure that, you know, whatever we did was going to be on a high level so we could get to the next step and eventually um, prove to our parents and prove to our peers that, you know, this could be a successful venture. Did that, so did that change your desire and, and drive oh, yeah. more? Because absolutely. It turned me yeah. on and like a switch just went on, right? Because for so long, they didn't understand what I was doing. And I was kind of like keeping it not a secret, but I wasn't as open with them about it. Right. So as soon as they found out about it, and as well as, um, you know, saw some of the small successes, uh, that's why they were open enough to be like, hey, if this works out, you could just continue to do whatever you're doing. You're obviously, um, you know, happy doing this, but as well as like you're forming a career that's you know applicable to your life and your lifestyle and what you want. So like, they let me go at it. And at that point, I was like, okay, that was all the steam and energy I needed to like fully go out and just and just get it done, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think about a lot of that stuff too with my folks in the sense that, you know, I didn't finish school or do any Same. stuff like that. I come I came here and my dad was actually for the most part he was really supportive, but it was support through maybe a bit of fear or nervousness. Into yeah. which he's like Oh, okay. Oh, so you're going to go to New York? Yeah. I, you know, it's like I could tell and I, in, in some ways, maybe <laughs> I, I empathize a bit now in which it's like, I want to be a empowering parent, but also a form of a parent that's, that can provide like security. Yeah. So it's absolutely. like, yeah, it, I mean, but that that's really, really cool. And that, that's a pretty big testament to like your folks and how like you were raised and the fact that they, they're like, look, yeah. like, if you're going to do it, go. Yeah, they're like, if you're going to do this, do it to the highest capability you can. Because I think what we also had to like kind of understand is like the career that I wanted, you know, 10 years ago wasn't necessarily formed yet. Or like that career path of, you know, what we were doing, it wasn't necessarily formed yet. Like the way it is today where you can be like, hey, like I've worked in art direction or creative direction or consulting right. or photography or et cetera, et cetera. Like there's so many new positions that have been created because of the internet and digital media. So I think at that time, it was still an early time for content storytelling and how pivotal it was. And now we see the effect and impact that Hypebeast has on general culture when it comes to just style and fashion, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the Hypebeast culture is a whole thing on its own. 
Um, and it's pretty mainstream now, thinking about it when it's very much like a niche, um, almost alternative counterculture, but now it's very much accepted in all facets of, of life now. Um, so yeah, I think of my parents like had the discernment to let me just do what I needed to do and just trusted me to do so. Like I wasn't a kid that lied or you know didn't tell the truth. But when I was passionate about <laughs> something, I was very like I just had my blinders on and like yeah, after you can't stop. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, meanwhile at the time, I think when I at first met you, you had probably just started doing some photography stuff. Yeah, yeah, like and very, mm-hmm. yeah, and you've since you know I mean shooting for nike google all this stuff how how, how did the photography thing grow i think the photography thing so i got a camera um when i was 17 i worked at ride playland which is in ride new york which is an amusement park i worked there for summer in order to afford this camera i was like oh yeah i can't (laughs) wait to get my camera (laughs) and like some some of the influences because of you know hypebeast forum and super future style forum things like that I knew I needed a camera to take these like outfit pictures, but as well as take photos of like, you know, clothing and sneakers and et cetera, et cetera, sell on eBay and all that Mm -hmm. other stuff. But also what I didn't know that was the camera was kind of this equalizer piece that everybody would use. It's so common today because it's on our phones and in so many different variations. But back then, like the camera is also like having a pen, right? And with that pen, you Mm -hmm. can write your own story. And I realized that through the camera, I was like, okay, like if I have this, you know, small little camera that's from Best Buy, at least like it's going to tell a story of who I am, where I'm from and kind of what I want to represent. And that's how I saw the cameras. I was like, hey, I could really tell a story with this. It's almost Shakespearean in that way, where it's like you get this pen, you get to write a story. Um, And it's just so happens as a visual, you know, a visual tool. Um, So you, you still get to like you know, kind of grow with it. And like, it takes stock of the time that you're in presently. And I think that's beautiful because it's so hard to, it's so hard to understand these moments until you look back and you're looking at old photos of yourselves or old photo from 10 years ago. You're like, oh, wow. I kind of remember the space and place I was in now that I look at that photo. Um, so I just found the camera was like a referential tool. But it was also beautiful in a way that you got to tell your own story based on your surrounding. Yeah. I mean, w- when you you were starting to shoot stuff because it was just you guys yeah. shooting each other. Yeah, but what yeah, was we your shooting each other? Mm-hmm. What was your first sort of thing where you're like, okay, I I think I can make a career off of this? Like, um, well, as far as photography, I think we were shooting each other for a bit. Of course, we had Fred Castleberry come in. We had Raj Walker, um, mm-hmm. Andre Wagner. Normally, we were just art directing and creative directing and putting photographers in a position to win and as well as express themselves. Um, it wasn't until maybe the last like five years that we saw like, Hey, like we could do this as well. Like, you know, it's composition, even though I've been, sh- I've been photographing, I didn't necessarily consider myself a photographer at that point. It was just mm. more so to convey a message. Um, so we had this long retainer contract with Adidas, um, out in Germany. And that's when we saw like, Oh, like we could actually photograph style art direct, you know? do strategy, do branding, do marketing. There's so many things that came with that relationship. But we realized that we had the full confidence to photograph and like put that out there, especially if a company like that was open to what we were creating. And we're like, okay, we know we could apply to, you know, our demographic, but like how, how do we communicate photography wise and make sure that um, it's telling the right type of story from our perspective. So I think once Striatica started working with the Adidas, it gave me the full confidence to be like, oh, like the work is good. Like, you know what I mean? I think 
Stratikit really was like this playground that we got to just test different things because there was no like it's just a relationship and friendship and community. Mm. So it's not like we had to answer to a CEO in order to make decisions when it came to anything business wise. We just went with what felt right. And, you know, it was the perfect place to test out ideas, whether good, bad or indifferent, and just have a space to do that. Um, because now we're like in this, you know, perfectionism culture yeah. phase where it's like you could only show the final product. You could only show, you know, the best of the best. Uh, because everybody's always watching. But I think back then we had enough space and time to make the mistakes, um, whether it was in our writing, whether it's in our photos, whether it's in our styling, whatever it was, like we we were just present and we got to like make those mistakes. And I think now it's it's harder to do that. And so people kind of stunt their growth and you aren't able to trip a little bit and learn why you trip. Right. Want even more Blamo? Head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community Slack, special events, and more. We've also been doing our weekly happy hour on Zoom, and we're launching new shows and mini series available only on Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo and we'll see you there. I, I feel like we, we, we glossed over the Adidas thing. What, what, yeah. how, how did that happen? <laughs> I know. So Adidas, <laughs> so I know, which is, that was like the, the last client we had, the last like partnership we had. Um, so I think that was connected through somebody named Berto Herrera. He's a art director, visual director at Adidas. He works there yeah. still now. He put on their president at the time um, of their group to screen again. They're just like, Hey, like, at that time, we had an interesting proposition because we could have worked with Jordan brand for a partnership. Or we could have worked with Puma and we could have worked with Adidas. Um, so we had three different companies kind of catering and kind of congratulations. Out, thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we, we had three different companies at the time trying to figure out what is a long term relationship look like with Screenicate. Like people were throwing out collaborations. People were throwing out all types of stuff. Right. So we had to figure out like, what does the best relationship look like? And at that time, Adidas wasn't a crowd favorite. They weren't like anywhere where they're at today. This is like pre pre Kanye and all of that. So they were trying to figure out like, okay, we want to be, we want to be reestablished and rebranded within America. Like where do we go and and how do we go about that? Um, They understood that they lacked kind of the, the visual and like referential DNA that Nike has when it comes to each shoe and the history behind it and who wore it and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Outside of the Stan Smith, it was very hard for them to kind of build that referential point. So um, it was that year of the Stan Smith, the superstar, uh, like it was that year where it just went crazy, right? Um, and we worked on a lot of that stuff, which was great. It was a great opportunity to see how our skills could be scaled in a corporate environment for like a billion trillion dollar company, right? Like it's different just working with the stuff we were doing and like the small editorials. But once we saw our skill set be applied to a big company like that and impact the everyday market, we were like, wow, like ideas are super valuable, especially when you have a big machine behind you like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's how we got to that Adidas partnership through Berto Herrera and Robert Lee. And we worked with them for like five, six years straight. Um, and that's and I feel like in that time we became less um active on instagram on these things because like we were just doing so much work we didn't necessarily have the time to be like posting and doing all that stuff so that's when it it became more of an agency less of a blog and we just did the work yeah who is guiding you through this this entire nobody (laughs) 
nobody just our lawyer and like you know the knowledge that we kind of picked up from trial and error of working with different companies um so it's it was really really interesting like we had no real guidance um other than like you know Ouija, theodore and maybe a couple of other people but no real official guidance where it's like hey here's how you build what you're doing from a to z right yeah um, so i think it was a good learning lesson and for me to have that experience to give advice and guidance and tips to kind of the younger creators coming up now that email me or, or hit me up for advice on things I could kind of speak to that experience and, and many more. Right. So um, yeah. people have seen me grow up on the internet from like when I was 15 and, you know, 16 to like now, and I'm like 31. So yeah. it's been, it's been, it's been a good amount of years that people have seen me or have heard of me, I've seen the work I've done. Um, so it's just been amazing to kind of help the next generation of creators and, and where they fit in within the industry. Yeah, I mean, there there were so many things, at least for myself, as I, I mean, obviously nowhere near any level of success that you had, but people would be like, oh, do you have a deck for this? And I'm yeah. like, Google searching, what is a deck? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. You know, and even now for the show, like sometimes yeah. I'll, you know, people be like, hey, that's great. We want to do it. Can you send us a media plan? And I'm like, media mm. plan? What the fuck? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like, Google search, what is media plan? Oh, God. <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, you'd mentioned that some of these people, you know, that have watched you grow up on the internet and they're, they're reaching out to you. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you really responding to all of them? I'm responding to most, especially if they're coming through a friend of a friend. Absolutely. Like for sure. Right. That's like solid. Um, through email, email and Instagram and things like that. I try my best to respond to most people. Yeah. You know, I also have to balance it, but I do respond to a good amount of people and just kind of give my perspective, you know, meet up, maybe a phone call, you know, maybe it's a student that just wants to talk for 45 minutes around, you know, their interest and in, like my experience within it and what works and what doesn't. So I've, I've had a ton of phone calls over the past like 10 years, but it's, I try Jeez. to at least give back because I know it's not like a, it's not like a thing that's out there that you could just find a blueprint and figure it out. Like a lot of times, a lot of questions. So I try to be a little helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, especially with just having that, that like constant generous and, and, you know, gracious attitude, I think in some cases it's, it's helpful and it's also uh, frustrating at times because some people are like, they just assume you, you don't have an off button or, you know, like how do you set up personal boundaries? Like for me, I always, I want to be a nice guy to every single person, but sometimes I'll get tons and tons of people messaging me things that are very, um, significant and personal yeah, and yeah. and I don't know how to respond where one guy was like yo you need to you need to like call this number like call this 1-800 number because this is a real thing that you're wrestling with wow. and I, I'm I can't be that guy yeah and I mean I, I imagine with you like you're having because you, you're the, the you're the success story you mm-hmm. and everything that like you've built and done you're the the role model and the success story I mean that's that's got to be quite a bit of weight on your shoulders no, absolutely. I think I'm so, honestly, like, it's a lot of weight and people know it, right? Like, I turned 31, like, a couple of days ago, well, this past weekend. And, like, mm-hmm. my Happy whole... Birthday. Thank you, man. <laughs> <laughs> my whole life, and, you know, I don't know if it's because I grew up in church and my parents were active in the church. My mom worked in a hospital. So, my mom worked in a hospital. My dad was a pastor at church and he did business on the side. So, like, very service industry, you know, service mm. community, service, you know, community first mindset. And that's like something I've been engraved and kind of like brought up in where it's like, it wasn't just about me. It was about the community, 
Um, it was always about the culture, especially growing up West African, like being traditional, still speaking a language, still like there's all these things and layers of like what right. community means. Um, and that was something that always rang true throughout my childhood. Um, but now, of course, like I'm like, I can't exactly be like my parents. There needs to be a balance, right? Because you could <laughs> give, 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 give. But if you don't receive, like you become, you know, you get hurt in that process. So it's really important to know that as you're giving, you should be giving to yourself and giving yourself time and giving yourself. And that's like maybe in a four, maybe past three or four years, that's been something that's new for me, like to be able to kind of create healthy boundaries, um, but not feel mm. guilty or bad because I, I wasn't able to help this one person or help, you know, this one, you know, whoever it is. Right. So I think right now I'm just very much more conscious about the energy I give out. Um, even though my intention is to help everybody, my ability may not be. Yeah. Not to yeah. be able to do that. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's, that's very much something that's been engraved since childhood. Like, and, and when I got that, um, this, so basically when I turned 31, I got a message and a video message from a ton of my friends, you know, cause we're celebrating indoors and like the yeah. most consistent message that I've heard in that, you know, 30 minute video was that the fact that I'm always there for people and, um, and yeah, very much kind, humble, gracious guy. And I'm like, I don't I'm like, this is just me. I don't know how to be any, any way else. Right. Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, what people see in yourself and what you see yourself to be may connect and may not connect. But I think those are like good driving factors to kind of see like, yo, this is who I am. This is the DNA of me and I could change and add layers and, you know, improve and be the best version of myself. But also I need to know who I am at my core. So I think, yeah, over time, especially through Striatigate to now, I've always just kind of been like an open resource for most folks coming up or, you know, things like that. Um, because people consider me an OG, but I'm still kind of young too. So it's like this weird balance because it's like, you've been doing this for so long. You know, yeah. some people are just getting started at 31, you know. So it's just one of those things where um, just being conscious of the, the privilege and the access and experience I've had, uh, but looking to pay it forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that, that kind of brings us to Tonal, which, yeah. I like, how, how did that happen? Because the impact Man. of that <laughs> is is huge in, in the sense that I had mentioned that I was speaking uh, with you to my wife and she was like, oh, that's the dude who does Tonal, right? Wow. That the, and I was wow. like, wait, what? And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's street etiquette. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, this is this is true. There's a whole there's a whole demographic of people that follow me now or familiar with my work that know nothing of street etiquette. Absolutely yeah. nothing. And it's interesting because I'm like, there's different errors to like, I guess, when you discover my work or when you discover what I'm doing. I think some people never heard of, of, of you know, street etiquette, but are very familiar with Tonal or very familiar with my personal work. So it's just like, I'm just super blessed to have the journey, right? To even have that difference where it's like, hey, like, like yeah. that's the guy that does Tonal. That's that's amazing. And I feel like a lot of people in media know that because Tonal is very much a media-facing tool. Um, so Tonal was birthed two and a half years ago by myself and Karen Okonkwo, and she's a good friend of my wife. Mm -hmm. um, and this is before we were ending the Etiquette Adidas deal. I was just thinking like, damn, what's next? Like, what do I really want to do? Like, I've had this, you know, micro influential role in, in people's lives and that's been great. Mm. But like, how do I impact the world in a macro way? Like what does, you know, uh, uh, open source, like impact and influence looks like when it comes to the rest of the world? Like not just cool circles, not just the most tasteful, aesthetically pleasing. I was just like, 
forget all that, like taking all that <laughs> off the table, right? <laughs> like what yeah. is, you know, what is simply advancing or helping or providing solutions for people look like? And that's where Tonal was kind of born from. Um, and coming from Street Etiquette, where me and Travis kind of had to drive, we had to drive the, we had to drive the train, but as well as like be on it and work it. And like Tonal was very much like, well, yeah, I'm a co-founder, but it's not really about me, right? So mm. it's able to live outside of itself and outside of myself in order to like do what it does. It's a business model, it's simple, subscription-based, here you go, right? Like very much different from Street Etiquette, where it's like people didn't really necessarily know our business model or, or what we did. <laughs> like a lot of times it had to, they had to reference the work we did and be like, I like this. Can you do this for me? Like, absolutely. So I think a lot, that's where a lot of our business acumen started. But with Tonal, it taught me how to actually think around scaling a business. Uh, what it, what does it look to provide a service for an industry? And what does it look like to have B2B clients like, you know, Vice or Google or HBO? Like these are all clients of Tonal, right? Some of the clients yeah. Tonal has, I, I, I never even worked with individually or at Street Etiquette. So it just shows that you could have this rechaptering, rebirth into the industry and continue to do things that are respected. But I think people also see the connectivity between Street Etiquette, Atonal, and my personal word. Because Street Etiquette felt like it was about the culture, it's about mobility, and Tonal is more about visibility, but more so from a, uh, a media perspective. Like how do you impact how people see each other, how they see themselves, how they see underrepresented populations? And that's like through media and commercials and journalism and press. So I knew if we could have an impact in those industries, I knew we'd be able to kind of shift things or at least create a a landing point and foundation for what diversity could look like, not just in stock photography, but in all imagery. Yeah. I mean, because the the biggest thing of tonal, and I mean, spoiler alert, if you if you are about to look it up, is it's all it's all culturally diverse, right? Yes. So it, it's basically it's supposed to embody and represent the yeah. multicultural, multi ethnicity world that we live in. Which I mean, and the photos are beautiful because there are people who have. Um, I'm not criticizing any other brands, but there have been companies that have tried to do different forms of stock photography based around sports yeah. or uh, ethnic groups, any of that other stuff. And it, I feel like they've they've never been able to truly, you know, not necessarily compete, but really stand out in, in the offering and the quality and, and what, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of buying into. I mean, I worked at an agency and we, we worked with different groups um, like this. And a lot of times, like, you'd go to a site and be like, well, wait, is this legit? Is this? And you're, again, I mean, it's very similar to the street head kid stuff. It's just, like, fully formed, extremely professional, absolutely beautiful. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised, but it's just, like, <laughs> it's it's very, very well done. And, it, and it's not even just, you know, uh, black and brown culture, like you were saying. I mean, it's it's across the, it's the across, gamut. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. I, I love yeah. that because I think it's it's important to kind of, you know, still stand by quality, still stand by some sort of aesthetics, but know that like, hey, this needs to hit, you know, the everyday person. And I, one of our first clients at Tonal from a B2B perspective was UIHI. And they are a nonprofit that helps with representation and uh, like information and just like helping like indigenous and Native American populations across the world, in particular in Washington state. Um, and it, it it just blew me because like they emailed us and said like, Hey, love everything that Tonal's doing. 
Um, and our biggest issue is that we don't have imagery, stories, or narratives that show how Native American and indigenous populations and Alaskan Indian people are living mm -hmm. today. Like people don't know what type of food we eat. People don't know that, you know, our traditions other than what's celebrated in sports, they're like, how can we collaborate on a catalog of images that show, you know, indigenous and native American lawyers and doctors and, and, you know, police officers. And so right. we did this whole project with them. That was eye opening because here I am thinking like, you know, black and brown communities don't have the right narratives and underrepresented, but like native American, Alaska, Indian, and indigenous folks like don't have anything like to show, like, you know what I mean? Like, literally there's not images you could think of when you think of what their food looks like nobody know what their food looks like and that's kind of <laughs> like the sad it's the sad part about it is like just to be able to collaborate with them um and work with different people that they casted it was amazing it was a, it was yeah. it was literally almost brought me to tears to think like wow like there's there's no reference point for some of these folks and like how can we be an engine of that yeah especially when at least for a lot of the at, at that time. So my, my, as a sidebar, my grandmother is, uh, was, is an American Indian. She was, wow. you know, on a, born on a reservation and all that other stuff. But for her, it was really about trying to hide that part of your life and mm -hmm. culture because mm -hmm. you would be persecuted for it so yeah. much that her father, uh, actually, because you, when you'd get your birth certificate, you just kind of like fill it out yourself. Now she's yeah. 95, whatever years old. So this is a long, long time ago that they just wrote white. They were like, yeah, we don't want her to get like messed with at all. So we're just going to hide this stuff. And, wow. you know, talking to her now and, you know, she's still very um, capable to, and cognizant to, to communicate with for the most part. You know, I tried to talk to her a little bit about this and she was like, yeah, like we wanted to hide all that. It was only maybe the past, you know, 30, 40 years that where we became way more um, you know, because she used to, she judged the like uh, Miss Miss American Indian pageants, and then she would yeah, speak yeah. at different universities because she was a storyteller, like a like That's amazing, yeah. And she was just like, yeah, so much of it initially was just hiding that part of our culture, and now mm. we're like, oh, dang it, we screwed up. Like we need to tell everyone about this so it doesn't totally die and fade away. Yeah, uh, especially yeah. when the, for her the stereotypes were. They're all drunks and they're all yeah, gambling. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and she was like, look, some of that was, you know, people did wrestle with that because you'd get your check from the government and there would be a, you know, alcohol place outside the reservation. You'd go, you'd get your booze, you'd come back, you'd booze up and you'd, you know, repeat all over again. And so yeah. she also worked a lot with um, uh, like prisons that had, wow. you know, wrongfully incarcerated, well, in her opinion and everyone else's wrongfully incarcerated uh, American Indians or people who are incarcerated for very minor, minor offenses um, to try to work with the prison systems and, and reform those and stuff. And it's, it's just interesting to me. And in some cases it's heartbreaking that I, I've kind of wish my grandmother was around more at this age in which she could really, um, you know, communicate that history. But thankfully because yeah. of what you guys are doing, that is a much you know, I would say easier thing and a welcoming thing, which, thank you. yeah, that's huge. No, that's an amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's an amazing story. Like I think, you know, a lot, a lot, I mean, even within the native and American Indian population, like there's so many stories to be told. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's only a fraction of them that have been told 
especially from them directly, right? There's always like this trans this translator that's going through. So I, I just think that this is an opportunity to not only tell underrepresented stories, but as well as have those be the the foundation for like future generations to do the same and feel more like themselves. Like I'm like, if this image on tonal just makes you feel more like yourself, we're doing our job. And it's a very um great business at that because our why is always consistent like it's just consistent it is what it is like to continue to create imagery for culturally diverse populations and continue to do that um so yeah yeah that's that's huge so what is the what does the future look like and i know that's a pretty lame question but i know so much <laughs> um, so the future for me like i've kind of from straight to tonal to the personal work i've been able to do like you said with nike and actually, Nike was one of the first clients and businesses that took a risk on street etiquette when we were like 18. You know what I mean? That's like, so crazy. 18, it, man. I know. <laughs> That's so I know. Awesome. 18, like literally. So <laughs> our first job with them was to photograph and style Kyrie Irving at Duke University. Um, Holy. And he walked out and he's just like, where's, where's the like stylists and photographers and stuff? Because he expected it to not look like us, right? Like not look like somebody. We're the same age, right? Doing different things. Um, oh my but at God. the same time, it showed it showed the shift of what was happening in the industry. Because it's like, hey, here's this 18 year old basketball player at Duke University who's going to be, you know, a touted NBA player. But also, here's these two guys that are visualizing the story and telling the story with him, right? And that for me, like, it registered. Then I was like, oh shit, like this is this is different. Like things are going to change after this. Like we're able with no college or business acumen to be in this space where we get to work with an athlete like this through a brand like this. Yeah, life is going to be different. And <laughs> I kind of felt that. <laughs> I kind of felt that in that moment. Um, so to even to fast forward to now, um, I I really want to continue to kind of just impact the creative generation and 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 further kind of define what that looks like, not just for myself, but as well as for other people, because I think for a lot of times. You think creatives and you think, you know, not necessarily the best business acumen. But I try to think like, hey, like as creative as you are, you could also create an actual business or you could create mm. another business. Like, and that's what Tonal was about. It was just like, hey, creativity is not just limited to your craft, right? If you could scale out your idea, you know, your creativity could even be challenged and as well as be kind of like kind of blown up and expounded upon when you're able to challenge yourself to think outside of yourself. Cause a lot of creativity starts with you and it ends with you. But I always tell myself, I'm like, Hey, like if this idea ends with me, then that means it's not big enough. I need to think outside of like, how do I impact people? So it may start with me because it's ego driven and it's experience driven. But after that, it should touch somebody I don't know necessarily. And, and that's how I kind of like look at the, I guess the relevancy, but also kind of the impact of the ideas I kind of come up with. So for me, it's continuing to work in these capacities to to support other companies, to um, creative direct, to tell stories. Like at the end of the day, I feel like I was a storyteller that's just been blessed with good opportunities to express myself visually, but as well as have people that believe in the work I'm doing because I'm like a lot of my work has always been around black and brown communities. So people like it's in a, in a way it's, it's it's a blessing to just have a whole career just doing that like i was just like man if i, if I did this till i was 93 94 90, whatever it is i'll still be happy right? right and it's like it gives and it's it's an all hands thing right because even though like this is happening in some type of microcosm or or just like you know i guess layered 
like communities, depending on where you're from. Like now more recently, I've been doing more work on the continent of Africa, in particular Ghana, because mm-hmm. that's where I'm from. And I felt like, hey, like I need to be able to tell stories that also bridge the diaspora because that's always been a thing for me, like not feeling American enough, but not necessarily feeling African enough or Ghanaian enough. Like right. I just played in the middle. So I was like, hey, like why not use this great area? Why not use this undefining moment to kind of tell more stories and and create some more definition within what people think of people who are first generation or from one place or another or move from places or countries. Like people have always migrated, right? But not, not necessarily thought about what they left behind, but also what they took with them. So a lot of the storytelling I want to tell is based around that or based around communities that experience that, um, whether you're first generation anything or have some type of background that you're linked to, I just always think it's important in order to like continue to tell those stories. Um, so I'm also involved in a lot of, not a lot, but a series of different companies that, you know, want my advice on things, whether they're startups. Um, and I just want to continue to kind of impact the creative generation any way I can, right? Whether it's through business, whether it's through storytelling, whether it's through films and documentaries, like I'm definitely working on a film that in documentary that will hopefully come out next year. Oh, wow. um, so just working on that as well. Um, but yeah, just continue to be a storyteller, right? Like I, yeah. I feel like stories are important. And especially in today's age, like after COVID, or people are asking what's the new normal, I'm like, hey, like before, you know, during and after, like stories is what's going to hold us together. So mm-hmm. I just want to make sure I'm telling mine. Do you, I mean, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but do you ever feel like in a lot of ways what you're doing is similar to maybe like what your father does in terms of the church and, and, and the fact that like, yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 look, you're not in the building. You're not, you may yeah, not be preaching yeah. the air quote gospel, yeah, but bringing yeah. people together, empowering people, uh, yeah. adding value to people's lives, encouraging them, empathizing. Absolutely. I mean, that's mm-hmm. so much of that. And I say that only because, you know, I'm, I'm a preacher's kid. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't even know that. That's oh, crazy. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad is, is, was kind of, uh, is kind of had to force to retire from his medical condition, but he, uh, yeah, he was, he kind of helped start a church and it's a whole other story on a different podcast. But, yeah, uh, we'll get into that for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like in, in weird ways, as people are products of their environment negatively and positively, it, it sounds like what you're doing is in a lot of ways, just really inspiring and encouraging other people, whether it's a, yes, a church at the or base not. Level. Yeah. 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 No, at the base level, I feel like that's what I've been called to do. And I want to continue to do that. Um, my dad is never being like, Hey, like, because I'm this, you need to also be this. Yeah. Like in what, how I express myself and like, you know, there's always, you know, the, you know, kind of the, stereotypes that go with you know going against the church or what have you but yeah. i was just like yo the real church is actually outside of the building like that's the real church like the actual people all around the world um who are looking to be kind of understood loved on yeah but as well as like yeah just connect connected to other people so I, for me that's always been a thing and i've never looked at it from just being in the church itself um, but looking outside of it and being like those are the people that actually need the help because a lot of times the church there's church the only church people like and and it just goes in this like cycle but i was just like nah man like i need to be out <laughs> in all ways possible to kind of connect to the people i need to in all in order to continue to tell the stories i am so one meeting just one you know last minute thing one meeting i had with viacom bt um 
So the area I'm from in the Bronx is where Cool Herc is from, and I used to see him growing up all the time. Cool Herc is one of the founders of hip hop, um, yeah, and was one of the first DJs that came over from Jamaica to kind of influence this sound of what hip hop is today. And I used to see him growing up like all the time, like you know, ten years ago, five years. I used to Jeez. just see him walking in the neighborhood, and it was nothing. It wasn't a big deal necessarily because we knew what the impact he had for the community, what he's done. Um, but when I took that meeting, one of the guys, his name is Adrian, he was like, you never look at the correlation of what you've done, you know, and knowing Cool Herc and the impact he's had in hip hop is like, looking at what you've done, you almost had that same impact. And especially when it comes to black and brown communities, when it comes to creativity, like, do you see the, the similarity in that? Like, maybe just by association from my dad to Cool Herc, like those were those were worlds that I was seeing and the impact of that and just being around leaders like that, that toted community um, maybe had an impact on me that I even know existed, right? Like growing up in this, the birthplace of hip hop, but also growing up in a church was like these two worlds coming together. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> and I mean, that that's, that's really beautiful. And it, I mean, it goes to show the, the, you know, insight you have and also that you're you're in a, a state of mind and in a place where you can also look at that and reflect on it because I think a lot of times um, the the real impact that people can make with their lives and their gifts is to be able to connect them to where they come from because when you can connect yeah. that it's like oh that's the source that's that's the yeah. part of my life in mm-hmm. some cases for some people it's it's pain it's anguish it's hurt but it sounds like you know in your case there was a lot of beauty and a, a lot of uh, empathy which obviously goes to show and and the byproducts of what you've been making and i think that's really really beautiful and i get it i mean I, I i get it it's it's great so oh thank you i i appreciate that i think um yeah just been blessed to have the opportunity to do this and create and like i'll never truly take it for granted in these ways so it's just it's just been great to be able to connect um with so many different types of people through the work and continue to do so mm-hmm. um so i'm just looking forward to continue to do so, but as well as connecting with more people. I think what you've done, being a voice for so many different types of people through the platform, but in general, you've always had a great like writing prowess and, and understanding of people and connecting abilities. So I'm just honored oh, almost to, to be on here and be able to tell this story. Oh, well, it means it means a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed it, it, it took this long. So I, I know I, thank, thank it's you. all good because I can't. No, I you know I feel like once I started doing tonal, I kind of switched like spaces and places. So like you know the people I used to be connected to because of style and fashion kind of became a little bit less like relevant in tonal's realm. But after that, after tonal's its own full on thing and it can move, what I did was like get back to my roots because I was like okay, I kind of not rejected me. I put myself at the I put myself behind to make. To- to make sure that tonal could go forward. Mm. Um, so now I'm going back and like getting back into personal work, getting back to style, fashion, creative work, but also just being able to tell stories again in that way. So that's been good to kind of get back to. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, shooting Kyrie Irving again anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? The connections are there. Oh, that's I'm amazing. definitely working with, with an athlete. Um, well, he, yeah, he still is an athlete. I'm definitely working on a future project with one that I can't talk about right now. No but worries. Like, yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. That's, that's awesome. Well, Joshua, I can't thank you enough for chatting with me. Thank you, Jeremy. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
edited by Brendan Finn and were produced by Blamo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blamo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community Slack, special events, and more. Best of all, you're supporting the show. Try it. It feels good. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.